0: All right. Well, this morning we're going to be in First Peter again, as you know, and so I'm going to ask you to stand with us as we read First Peter. We're going to pick up in verse three, which we've already studied, and we'll read down through verse twelve. And we're going to be focusing our time this morning on ten through twelve today. Let us hear the word of the Lord this morning. First Peter, chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you, by, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it be tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls concerning this salvation this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. It feels like a morning where I need to have my obligatory reference to Lord of the Rings. Y'all okay with that? I feel like it has to happen about once every couple of months, so we're going to go ahead and go do it again. (coughs) Excuse me. If you're familiar with, and I would believe most of us have been, if you haven't, you got to know that to listen to my preaching there's gonna be a regular reference to this so you might do yourself a favor and go you know read or if you have to watch the movies um lord of the rings of course is this trilogy by J.R. tolkien and then he has this prequel that goes along with it, the hobbit and by the way i might cough a little bit and in fact if someone can grab me a cup of water that would be really really awesome um, real quick, but I just I feel something coming on. It's been a little fit I've had this morning. But anyway, this trilogy of the Lord of the Rings... <coughs> excuse me. And you, if you know anything about this particular trilogy, you know that one of the themes that runs under the trilogy is this struggle with mankind. And mankind's struggle particularly with the power that they tend to... Well, they struggle to, to tend to have power. And when they have power, mankind struggles with how to use that power and not to use it for their own self-interest and gain. We, we, we kind of see that under this. And so one of the things under it is it's why particularly the members of mankind, if you watch the, stole, the whole story develop, it is why the ring particularly is a dangerous thing for any of the members of mankind the, uh, uh, of that particular storyline. And when they have it, it tends to corrupt them because they don't know what to do with that kind of, of power. So in the Hobbit, we find that this once great united kingdom of Arnor and Gandor under the rule of, uh, I I always say this wrong, Isildur splits. And the reason why it splits under his rule is that when he has that moment when he's fighting Sauron, the Dark Lord Sauron, he gets the ring and instead of destroying the ring, what does he do with it? He keeps it. He keeps it for himself. And what happens is it turns him inward and self preserve His kingdom is about preserving his own kingdom and his own rule over this kingdom instead of being a steward over the kingdom that he had been given through his father. And so, therefore, that's the kind of the hobbit story is this kind of split on Middle earth between these two great human man, kingdoms of mankind. Now, when you fast forward to the, the original trilogy, right, you have the first book of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, and we find a man named Aragorn, the main primarily the main protagonist in, in, uh, in Tolkien's trilogy there. And initially he's referred to his name as Strider, but we find out later on that he's actually the, what the heir to the great King. That's, uh, Isildur is, is, is Isildur. I don't, I always say this wrong. Sorry. Isildur. Is that right? Am I saying this right? Okay, whatever. Let's move on people. All right. So, all right. So anyway, but he is this Strider, Aragorn is what? Like he's this confidant of Gandor. I mean, of, Gan- of Gandalf, excuse me. I keep, I'm really butchering this this morning. I might not, not, forgive me. Anyway, but he's this, he this, this confidant of Gandalf, and they're on this quest, almost a secret quest, that other people begin to you know, progressively reveal that they're a part of, which is what? To find the ring and what? Destroy it, right? Because he knows that, that it needs to be destroyed for Middle-earth to be freed from the power and the darkness and the division that has um, that is that it has been succumbed to because of what happened in the previous generations the pursuit of of power and authority is really one of the things that mankind has struggled to do deal with the most through sense of garden amen that's really one of the most basic things that mankind has struggled with is who is rightfully in charge. And, and the reason why that's for us noted this morning is because that's exactly what Satan did. He, 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 he took and tempted Adam, he tempted Eve, and he said, look, th- this God, the Lord, the creator, doesn't have your best interests in mind. You actually would do better to rule yourself. And so that has been the trajectory of mankind ever since the fall. Amen. This is kind of what we see. This is the main arc of all the Bible. And it's been the arc of how to redeem man in spite of this failed pursuit over their own self-sovereignty. And what we find in the Bible is this progressive, wonderful uh, storyline of how God doesn't just leave man in his own pit of despair but that he is he's constructing this, he has constructed from eternity past this wonderful salvation that is, that is progressively revealed throughout the ministry of the prophets, the ministry of the priests, the ministry of the kings, and of course ultimately the ministry of the apostles as they have now sat under Jesus' teaching for three years. And all of this, of course, is preserved for us in these pages of Scripture. Amen. This is kind of the main idea. That's like Christianity 101 for us this morning. And what you and I know, just like Aragorn, who is this rightful heir... Um, to the to to the king of uh, king of Gandor and and and, and Arnor Ar- Ar- Ar, excuse me golly I'm really st- struggling with this in there Arnor Ar, um, this morning um, we know that the rightful heir of all things is is Christ we know that the rightful heir he comes to to, to tell the world through his his, his, his incarnation, that there is a God who rules all things. He is, he is calling a people to himself to be his new humanity, his new Eden, and those people will, will reside with him forever and ever and ever in a um, reconciled and a restored new heavens and new earth, a restored Eden, if you will, a restored Middle Earth, right? If you want to use Lord of the Rings terminology. And what you and I need to remember this morning, I think what the text is going to drive us to, and we see here in verses 10, is that there's this great salvation that Peter wants to take a time out in and help us see that this great story of salvation has been progressively being revealed to us. It's been protected and carefully uh, transmitted to us. And it's by that means that the church remains steadfast as we sit under the ministry of the word week in and week out And we cultivate and and, and need the word of God into our hearts through our relationships with one another. That is one of the primary means of grace whereby we remain steadfast in a world that is so hopeless without Jesus. And so if I had one sentence that would would kind of summarize everything that we're going to talk about this morning is this. That the careful work of the prophets that is preserved in the scriptures for us, it deepens the faith of the church in the work of, of God's work of redemption. It's a very simple idea. It's something that I think most of us would definitely say a hearty amen to, but do we give it the kind of proper attention in our lives that we should? Do we give the Scriptures the proper attention to, uh, in our lives? Do we recognize that we ourselves are enveloped into the same story as the church that has been revealed to us so painstakingly and so carefully to us in God's Word that that's the reason why you and I return to the Word over and over and over again? to be reminded that this storyline is our story. It's the story you and I have been invited in as God's people. So I'll say the sentence again, that the careful work of the prophets that have been preserved in the scriptures deepens the faith of the church in God's work of redemption. And I'll add a little tagline, until Jesus returns. Because that's really the context of this. This is an eschatological hope, right? Peter's saying, hang on, hold on to the word. In the midst of your suffering there, dear church, in in, in Asia Minor, which is, of course we be modern day hang on! Why? Because there's a day coming, there's a grand salvation that's going to be completed for us in Jesus and you're a part of that story be reminded of that dear Christian be, dear, be reminded of that dear friend this morning because that is what Peter would want us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be reminded of because again, just remind ourselves a little bit of what we said about verses 3 through 12 which we're going to come to the conclusion of this morning of this great kind of doxology That this is a song in some ways that Peter's singing. The song of a great God who saves a people for himself, that then that new affections grow into people for the person and work of Jesus, and that this story of salvation is preserved, has been preserved since eternity past for the people of God. How much do we need to be reminded of this right now in this moment? We're so easily turned. And we'll talk about this near the end. So easily turned by all the concerns of the world, all the battles, all the debates. But what the church needs most right now, in this very moment, I believe, with all my heart, is to be reminded that this great story of salvation, and then that is our mission, and that defines everything about us, that is our mission too. That really, at the end of the day, the church has a responsibility to be that new prophetic. It's an instrument to the world. And I don't mean prophetic in some of the weird ways when sometimes the church has abused that. I'm talking about the prophetic way in which we continue to hand down the message of salvation to the world so that God's work of salvation continues to spread to the world until Jesus returns. that's our prophetic office as a church. And when we get so distracted by so many other things in the world, we are actually doing the very core mission of the church. Um, abuse. We're disregarding what God has come in this church to do. We actually need to return to it. So Peter doesn't want us to move too fast through this doxology uh, of verses 3 through 9. He actually wants to stop before we move into this kind of s- the middle part of the sandwich we've talked about, right, of, of obedience and responsibility, and what God calls his people to do. He wants us to stop right here and just remember that this wonderful salvation has been something that God has been unfolding so p- perfectly and so beautifully for the people of God ever since eternity passed. And he just wants us to just revel in that. This morning here in verses 10 through 12. And that this great doxology that he's inviting us to sing with him comes with the very authority of God through the apostleship of Peter that you and I have been given this thing that Peter understands that that God has established his own authority as an apostle that stands in a long line of other authorities behind him, of all these prophets and priests and kings that God has chosen to use to unfold this great story and great, this great hope that we have in, in the in the work and person and work of Jesus. That he knows he stands in this long line, and he would be unfaithful to the church that he's writing to there in, in, in Asia Minor if he does not remember, I have been given a task, I have been given a responsibility, I've been given an authority. It's not my authority, it's authority that's been given to me and I must remind you of it that you are now part of this and you must, you must church. And I think the same message is the same for us today. You must ground yourself in this over and over and over again. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a deep dive into what I believe the the work of God's own self-revelation to us. Like, how does God, how do we get to this story? How is it preserved for us? Why do we need to take confidence in the word of God this morning? And why we need to go back to it over and over again. See, Too many Christians are going out and engaging in cultural debates with no true weapon. We don't know how to, so we just used all of the fainting weapons of the world to argue and debate about every little issue out there, and we need the Word of God. We need not be God's people. We, it, it, we would not be God's people if God had not condescended to us and revealed Himself to us. And so when we go out there and we engage in all these things without really understanding the Word of God and what we're called to, we're we're, going to do the world disservice. Because who cares about the cultural uh, 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 debates? They're going to end one day. But if we don't go out there and tell them about Jesus and about what He has accomplished in this worldwide kingdom that he himself has established for himself through the church and will be revealed fully and finally when he returns if we fail to do that in and, and, and an effort to always be involved in every little jot and tittle of every little debates out there we will sin. we could be partially i'm ultimately also responsible but ultimately we could be playing a part in someone going to a christless eternity now i know that that sounds like a really stark statement and i know ultimately we all know this Everyone will go to, where, to a Christless attorney on their own merit because they are sinners. So you are not contributing to someone's necessarily someone going to hell. Because, they, because But what I do want us to know is, but we don't want anyone to go there because we could not. We did not open our mouths. Right? Um, so that's what we want to do. Let me say it more pointedly. When the church is weak on the doctrine of God's revelation, i.e. the Scriptures... It is a. It, is, it will render itself, herself, weak and susceptible to what Paul says in Ephesians four fourteen, that would we'll be being children tossed to and fro by the wave, by by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning and by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. friends, don't let the church be that. Don't. So my outline this morning is really two two simple things. We want to take consideration of the, the work of the prophets and the careful work of the prophets. This is going to be the first thing, and then we're going to look at the chief aim of the prophets. The careful work of the prophets and then the chief aim of the prophets. The careful worker prophets we will look at in verses 10 and 11 primarily. Let's just read it again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what in person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We look at a couple things. Let's just pick out the verses themselves. Let's put our eyes on the text. Concerning this salvation. What Salvation. This salvation, the very salvation that he's been unfolding here in verses 3 through 9, particularly at one, through three, 1 through 9 for that matter, this wonderful salvation that has not just started with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, but it's actually very much a covenantal grounding all the way back to the garden. He's saying everything that Christ accomplished is the realization of all that God's been promising. So this salvation, this covenantal unfolding of the God's work of redemption, this salvation is the long-anticipated promise of God from Genesis 3, what we call the proto-euangelion. I know that's a really fancy word, but the, the, the pre-gospel. It's the, it's the pre-message of the gospel right there in Genesis 3.15. And that pre-message of the gospel then continues to unfold throughout the scriptures and is realized in person and work of Jesus. This is what we mean by this big word eschatological vision that Peter has been pointing out to the suffering churches there in Asia Minor. He wants them to understand that the, that the, the salvation you hold to now, presently, in the personal work of Jesus, is, will be fully complete when he returns again. So there's way more to our salvation to experience than what you or I will experience even in this very moment, as wonderful as that is right now. Isn't that amazing? So let's just kind of stop for a second here and just kind of, uh, kind of neat out what this means. What is it exactly this covenantal arrangement God has made with mankind? I just want to kind of give you some really foundational theological uh, uh, training, if you will, this morning, because I think sometimes we don't think about this when we approach the Bible. But when you think about what God has done since eternity past, what God has done when he unfolded the scriptures and give us and get, unfolded the work of the, of the prophets, he has been unfolding this, this covenant promise to a people, that they will be his people in spite of the, um, the disobedience of mankind. And you can break down this covenant promise into three bigger covenants. First, of course, we see the covenant of creation, or some people call it the covenant of, of, of obedience or covenant of works, however you want to say it. And it's basically this. In creation, and you've heard me say this before, God creates a people, he, he puts them in a place, and he puts them under his rule and blessing. That's what he is, Okay. God's people, God's place, under God's rule and blessing. We know, though, that if Adam had succeeded in obeying God, that covenant agreement would have resulted in blessing for all of mankind. But we also know, though, Adam and Eve ignored that covenant agreement and his law, and they ate of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what was the result? Adam and Eve and all of mankind, all their progeny after them, They would be separated from God for their sin and disobedience, and only enmity would remain between God and mankind. That is the result of everything that happened in the garden. So you're sitting in here this morning. You may have never heard the gospel before in your life. Let me tell you why the gospel is important to you, because of that reality. Our forefathers, all of them, failed to meet God's holy standard. They rejected God, and ever since, every man, woman, and child has lived in enmity with God. That is the covenant of works. That is the covenant of creation. Adam did not fulfill what God had commanded him to do. But praise be to God, God didn't leave it there, amen? There's a covenant of grace. That's the second aspect of this. These are the grace in which God. He hints at there in Genesis three fifteen. I mentioned here a, a minute ago that first marker of the covenant of grace, and this covenant is established and typified by God Himself with a specific person in His posterity. Who is that? That's Abraham, and in Abraham, He makes a promise that He'll bless the world and He'll multiply His family, and so that all the world is blessed through Him, and ultimately, how they're blessed through the whole world blessed with Him through the person and work of Jesus. That's the ultimate blessing those who trust in Jesus, who comes to, to bring salvation to them. But what we must see is that Abraham's children are not children, per se, of a, of a genetic bloodline that's important here, but they are a spiritual bloodline. This is what we see in the New Testament. It's all those who are faithful of the, of the, of the bloodline of, G, of, of Abraham. It has nothing to do with their genetic line. This is the problem when we get into all these, these, these earthly battles is because at the end of the day, this is not about that. But it's about a spiritual bloodline that God makes a promise to Abraham for that all those who come through you, because you're a selected people from all the nations, you're going to be my people, and you're going to be saved. Why? Because I save you. I will give a sacrifice and atonement for you. And so we know the story goes like this, that God says there will be, an, there will be a, when he tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac, he takes him up there. What does God do in the last second, right before Abraham is called to sacrifice his son? He provides a substitute. What is that a picture of? Your spiritual line will be provided a spiritual substitute. One in your place, one in your stead. He will have real flesh and real body, real bones. He will live a real life just like you did, but he will do what Adam didn't do, which is obey all of God's commands. And then he will lay down that life for you and me so that you and I would have no grace and we would be restored from our disobedience to God. Okay? So you see where we're tracking here? This is, this is the whole covenantal unfolding of the Bible. If you read the Bible this way, I promise you, you'll get way more out of the Bible than you ever thought you could. Now, what's interesting about behind all that, the two differences between the, the covenants is this. One covenant depended on the obedience of Adam, and we know how that ended. And one covenant depends on the obedience of God through his son, Jesus. God undertakes in the second covenant of grace, the one of grace, to say, you can't fix this yourself, so I'm coming to do it for you. He bears the entire weight of the covenantal arrangement in the second covenant. Now, here's what's wonderful about this. This didn't develop in time and space. Do you know that? That actually this covenant arrangement, this covenant agreement, this covenant uh, that God has designed so that he would rescue mankind from the face of the earth is actually something that was behind the scenes and the, behind the covenant of works, behind the covenant of grace in eternity. That we even see this in this very text, that God, it says there in uh, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ. Like there's something that's happened behind eternity that set the stage for this very covenantal reality. And it's an arrangement, not between God and mankind, but between who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? It says it right there. In verse 2, God the Father, by the foreknowledge of God the Father, he determined that he was going to save a people, that he would wash that people, he would sanctify that people through the Spirit. What? In the person of Jesus by the what? Applying of his blood to their lives. This covenant of redemption, we call it, actually lies behind all of all of God's covenant agreements with mankind in the pages of Scripture. Now, I've tried to make that as simple as I possibly can. Because when you understand that is the background of the Bible, what you and I are able to do is when we come to texts like this and we start to look at the works of the prophets, it says very clearly here, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired, carefully what this means is is that the very story that god has been developing and unfolding and progressively revealing and and frankly pushing forward by his own sovereign will has been intricately and carefully preserved for you and me and when Peter's speaking these words here in verses 10 through 12, to this Chinese church to this church that is struggling to, to remain faithful, struggling to have hope in the midst of all of the, the pressures they're facing in their own context, he wants them to know, "Hang on, dear believer, because your plot is something much bigger than your momentary afflictions. Hang on. So that's what he says. Are the prophets who prophesied about the grace is to be yours? The prophets' primary role, then, as we see it unfold in Scripture, was to what was was to point you and me to the grace that was to be ours by the gracious hand of God. See, there's a misnomer about prophets in their ministry sometimes that unfolds, and unfortunately, it's it can be kind of a it's unfortunate that that people think of prophetic ministry as these kind of like random utterances and these kinds of things, but that actually is not what the prophets did. No, they're not a people who who speak some elusive impression about who God is to the people of God. Like, oh, random wisdom, right? I don't speak this word into your life. You ever heard someone say that? No, you're not speaking anyone's word in anyone's life, okay? The the people need God's word, right? So if you've said that recently, um, yeah, don't do that anymore, (laughs) all right? Because you're not called to speak a word into someone else's life. You're called to reveal God's word to them through the pages of Scripture. But these prophets were that, very much that mechanism. They're much more than people who give impressions about God. They spoke the very oracles of God's divinely given message of salvation through these prophets about God's uh, main, uh, main storyline. And these, this main storyline can really be pared down into four main focuses, which we've already kind of already shared in this larger covenant story. That one, God is the ultimate sovereign creator and ruler of all things. Friends, you've got to know that. You don't have a right to yourself. God has rights to you. That's one of the primary responsibilities of the the prophets. You don't have rights over yourself. God does. He's the righteous, ruler, and sovereign creator of all things. Number two, in spite of our... Pushing back against God's rule over our life, God has a covenant arrangement with the people that he will make good on. And has made good on in his son, Jesus. And that he fulfills, number three, those promises that he says. So I like to tell people, you can read the Bible in two stages. Old Testament, God's promises made. New Testament, God's promises kept. So that... The prophets are always saying, God is ruler of the age. You are in rebellion against God, but God loves you. He's made a promise to save a people for himself, and he's going to keep those promises. And then four, he will judge those who deny and reject those promises. That's what the prophets primarily did. They spoke to these things both from a past reality, but they always spoke to the future reality of these things. That's what prophets did. That's what the prophets' ministry was. They always had in view the promises of God made and the promises of God kept. And Peter wants this church that he's writing to, and I would say by by extension, all those who happen to read that letter, which would be us this morning, to remind ourselves that God is good to his people. That their suffering is a momentary affliction, as we've already talked about in weeks past. And two, that their salvation is not merely momentary like their circumstances are, but it is very much eternal. That is our role. And it says they inquired carefully the person and times. We must take note of the fact that these prophets, the focus of these prophets had on their task. They were agents of the one true sovereign God who inquired carefully about the persons and times related to this great salvation. So the problem with the modern, charismatic, revivalistic movement, whatever you want to call it, is that they portray the work of God's spirit um, in a way that I believe is very uncareful and very haphazard. And therefore, because they have this Illegitimate pursuit of religious experience. God says, "You don't. You're not called to an illegitimate res- pursuit of religious experience. You're called to rest in what has been revealed to you by your sovereign God through the ministry of the prophets and, of course, through the Word of God." This is what a true church is. That's the problem with the modern charismatic movement. So I, I, I don't say that in, with any type of like indignation towards those who have a tendency towards more charismatic um, ways but i'd say that in a way that 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 only that which brings us back to this great story of salvation actually is legitimate that's what at the end of the day that we don't worship a god who is a god of disorder or chaos but he is very much a god of order and he is ordered very carefully through his own self-revelation through the ministry of divinely appointed ambassadors like the prophets the priests the kings and the apostles great many of people across a great span of time have participated in a very careful unfolding of God's covenantal work of redemption. 66 books testify to that, of the Bible. Why do we need to pursue illegitimate religious experience? If we have 66 books of the bible written over centuries and centuries and centuries by by men and and men and women who played a role in these wonderful story that has been unfolded to us throughout these ages tell me why you need an illegitimate religious experience you don't you need to come into god's word every sunday sitting under it submitting to it so that you then will be shaped and formed by that through the people of god under the word of god So that your hearts may be made full. See, their goal was clear. To point to the predicted sufferings of Jesus and the subsequent glories is what it says there in the text. They carefully inquired about the people and the the times in which all this stuff was continuing to unfold. So that what? They were looking forward to what? jesus coming although they wouldn't necessarily have known that necessarily in every one of their times in the old testament but they knew that there was someone a messiah who was going to come and he was going to write everything that went wrong and they were pointing and looking for that time which we now know is the sufferings of christ and the glories that come from that make sense they were carefully concerned about the glory of jesus that was demonstrated through his suffering on the cross and his resurrection. So that the people might know the reality of their salvation. So what are you and I to do to, to apply that this morning? Well, a few thoughts I have. The work of salvation is not some accidental or, or incidental reality. that, But it's very much rooted in eternity. That God crafted your salvation, brother and sister, this morning... From eternity past, that is the wonderful work of your God in heaven. That is what we rest in this morning, and that that work of salvation has been unfolded through the kindness and power of God throughout the ages, so that you and I, who now receive the benefits of all what the prophets did before us, which we'll talk about in a minute, we might glory in that, and we might rest in that, we might take use make use of that. God calls and inspires and directs the work of these prophets and these priests and these kings and these apostles who reveal the grace that was to be ours in Christ. In other words, you and I can take confidence in what we have here in the pages of this this book. Why? Because they saw, they spoke, and they wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the very message of saving grace for us. Because they all lived and they... But but we also have to remember that because they all lived and ministered in various times and epochs of redemptive history, their view of the Lamb of God wasn't always crystal clear, right? Because, you know, God gave them what they needed for that particular epoch and time, right? We need to understand that. But they still knew that there was some mediated work of grace that God was going to provide through the Messiah. Nonetheless... They possessed the same message. The same message, I've already said it before, that Adam and Eve needed as they were being removed from the garden. In Genesis 3.15, one day I will send to you one of your seed. Well, what? Yeah. He'll stomp the head of the serpent. And he will save you. That is just as much the gospel message as the same gospel message that he gave to Abraham and to David, to Moses, and it's fully realized in Jesus. Amen. That's the way we need to read the Bible. It's the way that God's people, and that, so when we study the Bible here at God's church, in God's church, at Grace Church, we must remember that that is everything to us. The gospel never gets old to us. I mean, essentially, it's what Peter's saying here. Don't ever let the gospel story ever get old to you. Look at what the wonderful way in which God has preserved this wonderful story for you. Don't let it get old to you just because you're experiencing some momentary afflictions. It's easy for you, believer, and I think Peter would say this to them right then, would be, it's easy for you to get wrapped up in your circumstances right there and think that that is the greatest need of the moment. Unfortunately, over the course of the last year, two years with all the conflicts we've had in our world i was listening to a pastor was talking about this on a podcast a couple years ago that when all the different things about oh my gosh all the cultural issues are facing i don't even want to go into all the details of that you know what i'm talking about there was a pastor who said listen right now in this moment we are going to be remain committed he's telling his church in minneapolis and it's not john piper's church he was telling the church in minneapolis hey look right now in the midst of all this hardship we're going to preach the gospel because that's the only hope. And he had two elders who came to him and says, we don't need the gospel right now. <sighs> really? I think Peter would tell the church in Asia Minor something very different. No, 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 no. Right there in the middle of it, Asia Church, church in uh, uh, Bithynia and whatnot, right? Galatia and Cappadocia. Right there. What you need most is the gospel. What you need most is this wonderful story that's been shaped and formed since eternity passed and preserved for you. So therefore, friends, right now I'm just, I think no one in here is going to disagree with this, That I can imagine. If you can, you can go talk to Justin about it. Because um, he'd be happy to have that conversation with you. I would too, but Justin's available. Right? The point is this the scriptures we hold and we read are the very certain and carefully revealed word of god and the church must make their exposition and their teaching and their disciple making a bill of uh, uh, aims central to our life and mission more than ever more than ever right now there's so much confusion that enshrouds the church today the debates and controversies that cycle through the world sadly, sadly cycle through the church as i just mentioned But the only antidote to such things is a deepening interest and renewed commitment to god's word that has preserved the story of salvation for god's people yes but what was their aim verse 12 their aim their work was these things this is what the prophets did but they had an aim which was what to serve us what it says there in verse 12 it was revealed to them that they were not serving they were they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. They were serving you and I. What a wonderful service you and they had to us. Men and women who, who God gave certain responsibilities to reveal certain things about His character and certain things that were there for that particular moment to point towards Jesus and point towards His great salvation that they couldn't even conceive of because they didn't have all the information to. They were serving you and me today and they they're. And they lost their lives for it in some cases. The main aim that God had for the work of redemption of the prophets was to serve us. And these prophets carefully worked this out throughout the generations so that you and I might have a faithful deposit of God's revelation to us through his word. See, the, the prophets, you've got to know, like they longed for the same things you and I longed for. but we have the benefit of having way more of the of the story the entirety of the story where they didn't that they, they like all people since the garden longed to know how god was going to fix this mess called humanity and they faithfully participated in god's work and, and, and ministry that they called him they called him to but they did it for you and me they did it for you and me. Why? Because it's that moment in Peter's time, some 60 years maybe or, or so after Jesus, or 30 years after Jesus' ascension, that this news, good news of the gospel has now starting to spread across the Greco Roman world and into the modern the world of that day. And it says here, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, through the Holy Spirit. In other words, the message of Jesus is the, is the finality of it all. It is the bow on the top. It's Everything that God has been wanting to reveal is now realized fully in Jesus. And these people are benefiting from that, things that they couldn't see. They now get to see this message fully realized in Jesus, and it was preached to them. That should tell us something about our task, to preach the gospel. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, we are to preach the gospel, just like that was preached to us, so that we might carry on the message of the gospel until Jesus returns. See, it's been the Holy Spirit's job throughout all of this unfolding revelation of God's work of redemption to, to, to do that through the work of the prophets and work through the ministry of the kings and all these different things we see in the Old Testament. And his job was always the same. The Holy Spirit's job was always the same. Glorify Jesus. The covenantal arrangement of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in turn he passed was simply this. God said, I will have a people for myself. The Son says, Father, I'll get those people for you. And the Spirit says, I will glorify the Son who's getting that for you. That is, the trinitarian, that is the trinity at its best in our salvation. And friends, this is what has been finally realized for the church, for Peter in that day. And it's the same message that you and I grounded in 2,000 years later. And however long the Lord tarries, that is the message we must continue now. That's what we must do. And it's make it clear, this salvation is so wonderful. What does it say there at the very end? The angels long to look at this. So now we're not talking about just prophets who are, very, who are human beings, okay? We're talking about angels who are heavenly beings. They're, they're not human. I know sometimes we'd like to kind of give them human, like mentally we think of them in kind of human parts and whatnot, but, but they're not human. And angels, as much as we might like them to be sitting on our little tchotchkes around our house or whatever it is, if you're into that, that's fine. But just understand something. They're, they're divine beings who would love to experience the grace of God like you do. And they don't get the benefit of that. They have known all about it. They have seen it unfold. They've known and seen and played an instrument and declaring to people like we've seen angels show up in different parts of the Bible to declare God's movement among the people of God. But they don't get the benefit of it. I mean, just think about that for a second. Angels, again, we think of them as these celestial little beings with uh, reticent glory, but that's not really their role. They have their primary role is to announce the character and the works of God and sing the praises that are due His glorious name. But They get none of the redeeming benefits and they know none of the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus because they are not the object of those things. Now listen, we all know that there was that part of the heavenly host that went with Satan, right? They don't get the benefit of that either. And friends, you and I must recognize... Here we have the angels, the very, very, the very people, the very, I mean, very, the, the very beings that were there in the heavenly host among the, the, among the Godhead themselves, and they're in, the, they're in the presence of the Godhead, and they have washed it all, and they would much rather be in our place. They longed for these things. See, the, the gospel, for them, they knew it, you know, cerebrally perhaps, but they could never know it experientially. You and I get the benefit of knowing the gospel experientially. The gospel is not some mental exercise or cerebral exercise, but it's a deep experience, an experience of God's love and mercy, an experience of the depths of his grace and kindness. Now, of course, these beings knew that, right? But they didn't know it like you and I know it, or at least should know it. And they longed for it. They yearned for it. They desired it. See, angels are not some stoic beings based on this text who are just kind of there, unfeeling. You know, no, they, were, they spent their entire, they, the entirety of their creation is what? To sing the praises of God. Amen. And they still, even with such a task, long for what you and I get to experience. What a beautiful thing. But when we finish all this out and we. Think about this from our vantage point what does this mean for us as we kind of kind of begin to make the turn towards closing up i said this earlier the, the thing the one thing in this moment right now i think the church just needs to be reminded of is we are carrying along that prophetic task to the world now that is the church's job to preach the good news to announce to the world the good news of the work to the world to herald the rightful rule of god over all things and to remain committed to making disciples to whomever the lord draws through that message that's it that's it but i fear it's so easy when we find intense times of cultural debate and drama and all the different things that it's easy for us to redefine our task by the fleeting carriers of the world, and we think that we're being faithful. Yes? So let me try to illustrate it this way. There are many systems that are now kind of found commonplace in the church today that are... that that the church finds very intriguing and we think well that must be the church's mission right that must be the church's mission and again you can think of many different things perhaps you've heard terms like social justice warrior or cultural warrior right and if you want to know what the difference is they're kind of the two extremes of the cultural debate right now you got your social justice warriors on one side you got your cultural warriors on the other side and let me just tell you up front right now all that stuff is thrown around in the church right now but it has no help it's not helpful it's not helpful you know why They stand at the bookends of a cultural issue and they're trying to find a place within the mission of God and they're not part of the mission of God. They're not. I think these things would be very foreign to the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, because ultimately what they do is, is what, what, ultimately what they do is they, they confuse the church's mission. They confuse the church's mission. The church's mission is to what? Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and know that he is with us always until the end of the age. That is the mission of the church. Why do we too easily get bored with that? Why do we think that we need more than that when we are facing the challenges that we face in our world? It's because ultimately, there might re- reside in our hearts some lack of I don't know, trust or confidence that the gospel's enough. Just like those elders who told that pastor, we don't need the gospel right now. No, what we need is we need, we need more people you know, doing work in racial justice. We need more people doing cultural warrior justice over in Washington, D.C. We need more people passionate about abortion. We need more people passionate. And all those things are true. The Bible says these things are true. The problem is that we're using systems that are formed to the Bible's call to mission to actually address these things. And the gospel is the only way to address racial issues. Amen. And the gospel is the only issue, the way to address abortion issues and life issues. Amen. Certainly we as citizens have to play our role in this particular space and time in America. Of course we have to. But the church's mission, preach the good news we deliberately read the law this morning. What do I I have? Can you hand me that bulletin right there? I'll do it. I'll get it. The law this morning, we did it. You're okay, buddy. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility. The only way to break down the hostility between any man or child or woman or child in the world, whether that's ethnic or cultural or or, or economic, whatever it is, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we feel like we have to have the tools of the world in the church on either end of the spectrum? I am going to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. You don't need them. Peter makes it expressly clear in this text. You sing the gospel and you have enough through the ministry of the prophets to carry you through to faithfulness until Jesus returns. Amen? Amen? Friends, this is it. This is everything to us. This is everything to us. Paul says, and we said it earlier, I'll read it again, in Colossians 2, actually we didn't read it earlier, Colossians 2, 6-15, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were once raised with Him through faith in the powerful work of God, who raised Him from the dead, you... And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The gospel is enough. The gospel is enough. So let's just wrap it up here. The same salvation that has been progressively revealed from eternity past and fully realized in Jesus is, and has been passed down to the church today is the same message that you and I must remain on mission with until Jesus returns. I'm unapologetic in that. I'm unapologetic in that. This message was the only hope to that suffering church in Asia, and friends, it's the only hope for the suffering churches right here and right now. Amen. Amen? Amen? Let's finish and let's go to the Lord's table together.